The dream and the point at which he regains consciousness are always the same. Invariably, the duvet is on the floor, as it is now, strewn like a discarded animal skin. He backs himself onto the pillow, raising his torso on both elbows, and forces his startled eyes to absorb the detail of the bedsit's interior. First, the armchair at the foot of the bed. He follows the green fabric down to the carpet and traces the join where the two sections meet in the middle. Then across the mottled lino which demarcates his kitchen area. The sink is piled high with washing up and on top of the dining table which wobbles when he sits down to eat because one of the legs is too short is the plate from which he last ate, still dusted with toast crumbs. He visualises the shared bathroom on the landing, its toilet with a cracked seat and the smell of medicinal soap. The bedsit's crimson curtains are drawn across the window in vertical waves, like in front of a stage. Already half-dressed in underpants and purple sweatshirt, he grabs the tracksuit bottoms draped over the TV, pulling them on as if getting into a sack. Last night he took off his watch and now he can't find it nor his mobile phone. Whether it's morning or afternoon, he doesn't know. He's been off work for the best part of ten days. He can no longer recognise himself. When he was 14 and a coffee runner for customers of Mr Helili's shop in Mitrovica, Kosovo, he dreamt of becoming a professional basketball player. Not a future like this that at 21 he'd be living in a dump and alone in London, working as a street sweeper, that he'd be earning a living doing something only old men or gypsies did for peanut money. Back then, he was somebody different. His world was a different place. Everything changed. The sleeping pills, he stares at the packet in front of him, called something that sounds like an alien planet, have brought sleep back, of sorts. The vile taste in his mouth is worse than usual. He has an overwhelming urge to throw up. He is hardly stirred from these four walls. The atmosphere inside has attained a consistency of overly thick soup. Shouldn't he at least open a window? He peeps through the curtains, tentatively casting his eyes onto the high street below. The market is in full swing, with shoppers weaving up and down and in and out of hopscotch lines of stools. All the people look like puppets from where he is standing. The sound of the doorbell reminds him of a blue bottle stuck on flypaper. He doesn't respond, hopes whoever it is will go away. Leave him alone. He's not in any frame of mind for conversation. But the doorbell is pressed again, followed by a series of measured knocks. Better not be those kids who hang around and smoke in the stairwell downstairs after the schools have let out. Not up to telling them to fuck off today. Anyone in? A muffled voice. Female. He can't say how old. If he ignores it, she'll leave. But the voice is persistent. Hello? Keep quiet. 
eventually they will give up and go away. Hello! Momentarily he floats out of himself, returning in an instant like a boomerang. Anyone in? He's tempted to draw the curtains, creep back into bed. I'm from Befrienders. You should have received a letter to say I'd be calling today. The letterbox creaks as if prized open by whoever's outside expecting to be let in. You there? The voice is clear and to the point, yet it holds a hint of warmth about it. On autopilot, he shunts himself towards the front door. Kindness radiates from the smile on her face. It's why he removes the security chain and allows himself to stand before her in full view. The befriender scheme. Your GP? The referral? Her words wash over him along with a waft of scent from the perfume she's wearing. It's overpowering. Smells of lemon candy denote something far removed from his own experience. At once he is ashamed. Can I come in? The state into which he has let himself sink now prods him with embarrassment. How he must look. The saucer-eyed way she is staring at him. And he sees the determination in her eyes to hold on to decency, to see this through. She coughs and makes light of it. Excuse me, she continues. Is it okay for me to come in? For a few minutes, if you like. She fidgets with the strap of her shoulder bag. The shine on her black plastic mac is vivid. He knows you'd never find a mac like that anywhere in this neighbourhood. His dry lips adhere uncomfortably, then burn as they pull apart to mouth something. But his voice has abandoned him. Or we can arrange another time. She pauses. They look at one another. And he knows they both know that if he doesn't let her in now, chances are. No, he answers. Then corrects himself. Sorry. Inviting her inside with an uncertain beckon. Once the door is shut behind them, the limited space forces her closer. He can see behind her bravado. This lady is just as scared as he is. It's dark in here. Not much of a welcome for anybody. So he switches on the light to reassure them both. She stands a few centimetres taller, stares past him into the bedsit. Her upper lip twitches. Addressing the room's interior, she says, If you're sure it's convenient... He shows her to the lone chair at the table and wonders if this is such a good idea. They are as opposite as day is to night. She's speaking to him like she's known him for years. It's he who now fidgets, first brushing his hand over the rumpled sweatshirt, then sliding fingers across the stubble on his scalp, imagining a quiff in need of levelling. He backs away walks over to the still unmade bed and perches. The atmosphere between them is like before a storm breaking. He drops his head, stares into the floor, 
recollecting the sudden impact on him of her perfume. He wishes the floor would open, swallow up his awkwardness, and for this stranger to not be sitting opposite, looking at him, undoubtedly in pity. Does she inside feel nervous about being at such close quarters with a man half her age? There's no need. Nothing is further from his mind. Still. She flits in front of him before slipping off the plastic mac and folding it over the back of the chair. She is slim. Has on a fashionably pale blue dress which comes just to below the knee. Accidentally he glimpses the top edge of one of her boots. Quickly looks away. So, like I said, I'm Julie. Your befriender. She leans forward. I can see you every Friday afternoon from now on if you want. Next time we might go for a coffee. She waits for a reply which he feels unable to give. Then continues. If it's a nice day, what do you think? If you're not up to it, we can always nip out and get cake or something. Yes, lady. He's decided to go along with whatever she says. He must be polite anyway. I'm Julie. Please call me Julie. 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 He puts a cigarette into his mouth, lights it, and takes two puffs in quick succession. I am here to help. Help you get out again, Elmir. I hate that name. I have to call you something. Call me Al. Al, shall I make us coffee? Okay. Look here, I brought us... She gets out the biscuits from her bag. Chocolate digestives. How about that? She rises from the chair, asks him where he keeps his coffee. He nods in the general direction she's been looking. Her heels strike out over the lino in a sort of slowed-down woodpecker rhythm. He inhales sharply from his cigarette, only just managing to hold on to the urge to cough engulfing him by pressing his tongue against the roof of his mouth. Ah, there's the kettle. Now... Coffee? Reluctantly he stands, then walks across to join her. The lino is freezing against his bare feet, provoking the dream that woke him before her arrival, which now replays in his head. An angry sun is beating down. He is naked, walking across the bridge in Mitrovica, with every step, the dirty asphalt burns into the soles of his feet like jet flame. Muzz is with him, so close at his side that they are almost touching. Muzz is bleeding heavily from a wound to his chest. The spreading red soak is making the camouflage pattern on his jacket disappear. Other people on the bridge pass them by as if they are invisible. In here, she says, reaching up into the cupboard over the draining board. And the sugar? 
He points, goes to the table and sits down. She selects things from his limited shelves like a magpie picking out an already opened box of Tesco sugar cubes and a bottle of camp coffee which holds particular interest. Didn't know you could still get this. I like how it tastes. When she opens it, the small ancient fridge hums and agitates. She pokes about for a minute, then holds up a can of evaporated milk. This? Yes. Okay. Everything is laid out in front of him as if part of a valued collection. So long it's been since anyone made such a fuss for his sake. She, he hasn't yet fixed her name in his brain, she is kind. This woman, this befriender, is nice. Better her in the room with him than Muzz's ghost. Sweet tooth, I see. Nowadays I pile on the pounds if I'm not careful. When I was your age, I could get away with eating anything. She is standing slightly in front of him, holding her mug between both palms and taking long slurps. Your bread's gone off, so I chucked it. Will you be all right for later, or shall I pop to the shops before I go? No trouble. It's fine, lady. But you've hardly got anything in. Almir takes a biscuit from the plate and breaks it in half. He observes her as she looks back at the sink full of unwashed plates, the dirty pans and the line of empty food tins, each one with its sharp-edged lid pushed carefully down inside. Let me clear that lot up for you. No, thank you. Can't leave it like it is. No, thank you. Please, let me out. He forces his tongue against the gold crown at the back of his jaw until the fragments stuck there are freed. The taste of chocolate bursts into his mouth as the biscuit melts, then dissolves. She has removed her hands from the sink and is studying them. My skin is playing up something shocking. Next time I'll bring my washing up gloves. Always use them at home. Surely, he thinks, this lady must have a maid or at least a dishwasher. Julie pulls the plug, then rinses under the cold tap, ignoring the tea towel lying in a filthy heap atop the fridge, and shakes her hands in a small rainstorm over the sink. From underneath, she pulls out a stool he'd forgotten was there. Mind if I sit on this? She carries it back to the table in one hand, sits down and slurps her coffee, which must by now be cold. She must only be pretending to drink when she starts up again. Explains how she's come to live in Buckhurst Hill after the divorce. Buckhurst Hill, hitherto for him just a name on a bus route, but which she says isn't too far from you, really. She's got two boys, David, her eldest is about his age. David's at university studying chemistry. Her other son is travelling around Australia on his gap year, whatever that is. Currently he's working on a sheep farm. His last email said the nearest town was two days away by four-wheel drive. And Almir knows she's trying to be friendly, but he lights another cigarette which cues a break in her flow. She nibbles the edge of a biscuit. How I've gone on. Must be boring you to tears.
No, she isn't. It's just that there is a lot to take in and she is speaking so fast that he can't always understand. Tell me about you. It must be very different for you here. She blows smoke in a wind tunnel plume, careful to direct it away from the biscuits, away from her. Yes, very different. People here different. He nearly tells her where he is from there are only white people. Serbs, Albanians and gypsies and they all hate each other. But just in time he remembers to keep his guard. She stiffens, looks about the room, distracted. Have you family still? He stares into the burning end of his cigarette and tries hard to focus. Sift something, anything, from the debris of memories. Sort out a few facts. His father is dead. There is his mother and sister. They left their home in a hurry with only what they could carry, fleeing into a forest to escape Serbian shells. The last time he saw them was in the forest. His mother's half-crazed look as he left them to join the fight. Not even the Red Cross knows what happened to them. He once had a best friend called Maz, but he's dead too, from a chest wound, because, because, because they couldn't get him to a hospital. No word from his other relations. Everyone moved away or... All this makes him want to cry. He won't cry. He can't. Not anymore. But he still gets the gut-churning sensation. The welling up. He knows she's expecting a response. What he says is, I'm sorry. Tired now. Worn you out, haven't I? So... Is next Friday okay? Same time? I can do another day. He shuffles on the chair, uncomfortable, under siege, as she continues. Not Tuesday, though, as I've got a hair appointment. Oh, and not Wednesday either, because that's when I do my Spanish. Next Friday is okay. In my diary. She comes over to him and right up close as if she's about to kiss his head, like his mother used to. Doesn't, but he senses the intention. I'll get my things. Alone once more, he stubs out another cigarette against the inside lip of the coffee mug. A tide has washed in and gone out again. He is not sure if he wants the lady to come back. All that chatter. She's touched on things that have left him raw. He contemplates the remnants of their shared afternoon. Ponders over the cleaned plates, the washed up pans, the tidied away things next to the sink. He reaches out and takes another biscuit savouring the crumbly texture as it blends with the sweet melting chocolate. Makes him think about home, 
when the UN came into Kosovo and the war ended. He drifted back to Mitrovica, but there was nothing left. No one he knew, no jobs. All was broken down. He lived hand to mouth with no hope and the revenge killings. Once he made the decision to leave, there was no turning back. Here in London, however hard things may be, he has a chance of something better. This, now, is home. He walks to the window, steps in closer. His hand moves quickly, grasping the handle, then flinging the window open as far as it will go. He puts his head outside. Although it is cold, damp and smells of the street, he doesn't mind. Not one bit. Because he can feel the air moving across his face. And it is this sensation that reminds him he is still alive.